Christine Khutsong. Thank you very much for that uh, SMS. Well, uh, Nancy Richards is up next with Otherwise. Till then, bye-bye. Thanks very much, Bongi. I know about time running out, eh? What we have on Otherwise today on the show, we're going to be talking to a woman whose business is in people development. She'll be explaining how she developed herself as well as others, despite being paralysed. We'll also be finding out a little bit more about the DNA project and the DNA draft bill, designed amongst other things to identify rapists, and talk to the founder of the project uh, who has a personal vested interest in it. We'll also be hearing about a silent protest at Rhodes University, which seems to have spread countrywide. Plus another otherwise mole, this time from the Northern Cape, to tell us what's up for women in her area. But right now it's one o'clock, time for the news with Asanda Matsunyani. SAFM, South Africa's news and information leader. Thanks, Nancy. Two South Africans injured in Boston bombings were not athletes and Health Professions Council withdraws from Karaba's conference. That's in the news this hour. Good afternoon. International Relations Department says the two South Africans injured in the twin Boston bombings in the U.S. were spectators and not athletes. Department spokesperson Clayson Monella says they were treated for minor injuries and released. Monella has also confirmed that 28 South African runners participated in the Boston Marathon, which ended in bloodshed after two blasts that killed three people and left more than 100 injured. We continue to monitor the situation and follow it closely in addition to checking with hospitals and local authorities and we shall be updating South Africans as and when we get the information. Meanwhile, Boston and federal authorities are continuing to search for clues that can lead them to suspects responsible for the blasts. Officials, including the U.S. president, say they do not yet know who was behind their attacks. Show and Bryce Peace reports. No claims of responsibility this morning as Bostonians and their fellow Americans wake up with no further clarity as to who was responsible for the carnage and devastation at the finish line of Boston's famed marathon. Two devices were detonated while officials have indicated that a further two devices did not explode. The National Union of Metal Workers of South Africa, NUMSA, has again called for a review of the National Development Plan. The union is meeting in Pretoria for a four-day national bargaining conference. NUMSA President Cedric Gina. The imprints that we see today in the NDP vindicate the fears that we had as NUMSA then. And we urge the leadership of COSATU, the leadership of the African National Congress, the leadership of the South African Communist Party, to prioritize a thorough discussion on the National Development Plan in the coming Alliance Summit that, according to the Nehau NEC statement, will take place in June. National Association of Manufacturers in Electronic Components, NAMIC President Keith Koza, says digital terrestrial television, or DDT, can deliver more than 100,000 jobs. Koza was speaking at the DDT multi-stakeholder conference in Santon. The SABC's Edwin Tsidi is attending the conference. 
Kosa says the digital migration program is key in economic development. He believes that the program is also key in alleviating poverty. He says despite the delay of the launch, South Africa has the capacity to deliver. Target date that has been set for DTT is 2015. Among those attending the conference include SABC CEO Lulama Mukoba, officials from Black Business Council, Sanko and Communications Workers Union. The meeting is aimed at providing participants a platform to reflect on the DTT and related matters and challenges standing in the way of successful migration from analog to digital. Edwin in City, SABC News, in Santon, north of Johannesburg. Police have opened an inquest docket after a handler at the Elephant Sanctuary near Hartebeersport Dam in Brits was trampled to death by an elephant. Police spokesperson Amanda Funani says the 39-year-old handler was busy with a daily exercise program at the time of the accident. The 39-year-old was doing regular exercises with the elephant. The elephant saw another elephant coming in front of it, and it became wide and lost control. The 39-year-old fell, and the elephant walked over the victim, and he died on the scene. At this stage, we are still investigating. The Health Professions Council of SA, the HPCSA, has withdrawn from an international medical conference in protest against the continued detention in the UAE of local doctor Professor Cyril Karabas. Acting Registrar Advocate Sepo Boikanyo says the HPSCA is appalled at the manner in which the UAE has handled the Karabas case. The Africa Health Exhibition, which is run by the Dubai-based company Informa Life Exhibition, is scheduled to be held next month in Johannesburg. 78-year-old Karabas has been held in the UAE since August on charges of manslaughter and falsifying documents after the death of a three-year-old Yemeni girl he treated for leukemia in 2002. Recapping the top story, International Relations Department says the two South Africans injured in the twin Boston bombings in the U.S. were spectators and not athletes. For SAFM News, I'm Asanda Matsaunyane. Headlines at half past one. Over to Cape Town. Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Thanks very much, Asanda. Here we all are in Cape Town, which is looking, I have to tell you, very dark and stormy, and it looks like we're going to have some serious weather coming in very soon. Nonetheless, we love it. Otherwise, it is Talking Women here on SAFM. I'm Nancy Richards, the team Hazel, Mike Wazani, and Albert Clarsen. And who we have on the show today is uh, Marsha Gabriel. She's the CEO of the Helping Hand Network. She's going to be talking about her business developing people and how she's developed herself despite being paralysed some years back. We'll also be finding out a little bit more about the GNA project uh, founded by a woman for whom she has a vested interest and uh, the DNA uh, draft bill, as, uh, which, as you know, has been designed, amongst other things, to identify rapists. So we'll be finding out all about that from Vanessa Lynch, founder. And we'll be hearing on the subject of rape about a silent protest at Rhodes University with RU Silent organiser Larissa Klatzinger. And it seems that they, uh, the protest is spreading. There's going to be one in Johannesburg and also in Cape Town. Plus, we'll be starting off with an otherwise mole. She's Shanae Kemp from the Northern Cape to tell us what's up from women in her area. But let's have a little bit of a what's news. Well, how good to hear about the men's dialogue hosted by Brothers for Life, at which uh, Deputy President Hatlema Motlante has spoken out against men abusing women, highlighting the use of alcohol as simply an excuse. 
really, really good to have a high-profile man speak on this issue. And he's uh, quoted as saying that most of the perpetrators of gender violence are men, and this dialogue should help them to curb it. And for those who feel remorse, it also offers a platform for them to come forward and talk about the issues that cause them to abuse. And at the end of the dialogue, men will hopefully adopt and sign a pledge to stop abuse against women and children. We sew behind that. Causing a little bit of a furore in the UK, 83-year-old British racing legend Sterling Moss has controversially suggested on BBC's Five Live that women don't have the mental capacity to compete in Formula One racing. I think they have the strength, he says, but I don't think they have the mental aptitude to race hard, wheel to wheel. The mental stress would be pretty difficult for a lady to deal with in a practical fashion. Well, it's been more than 20 years since a woman has competed in a Formula One race, so I believe. But Scottish driver Susie Wolfe said that Moss is really speaking from another era. Well, what do you think? I, I certainly can't claim to have any knowledge whatsoever. But what do you think? Could women, can women, should women be competing and winning at Formula One? Pop us an email. We're at otherwise at safm.co.za. Or better still, send us a message on Facebook. It's uh, otherwise on SAFM. Mm, and just lastly, on the health front, whilst as uh, women may be looking to increase their mental capacity in whatever way will suit, the other day you might remember I mentioned three of the six superfoods said to be powerhouse nutrients, especially for women. Those first three were low-fat yogurt or yogurt, fatty fish, i.e. salmon or sardines or the like, beans, and that's beans as in pulses, not green ones. Well, the other three are tomatoes, which are a powerful antioxidant, which help fight against breast cancer, uh, vitamin D fortified low fat orange juice or milk which is essential to help bones absorb calcium and lastly berries any kind of berry blueberry, strawberry, raspberry, cranberry you name it, get your hands on a berry but I do have to say that coming from a, a US website it's certainly not a cheap list of power foods so uh, hopefully if you can just access one or two of them that would be good on the uh, issue of power though just a heads up for otherwise tomorrow it's our help desk we're going to be talking about uh, looking at physical fitness for a woman. What makes and keeps you fit and what does it really mean? How do you, how do you like to be fit and is it, is it working for you? Maybe we've got some ideas. We're going to be talking to a personal trainer. So join us for that one, 0892102010. That's otherwise, that's tomorrow, but right now, stay tuned. Do you wear glasses and are confused about all the different multifocal lens types and their different prices? Does your medical aid cover the cost of an eye test and spectacles? Ask Specsavers. Log on to our website and use our new Easy Find Wizard to quickly track down answers to all your eye care related questions. Or click on Live Chat and get instant optometric advice from a qualified optometrist. Go to askspecsavers.co.za. Imagine having the freedom to create, read, watch, organize, and share your life on the go. Being able to read news or maybe check the stock markets anywhere, anytime. And in perfect clarity thanks to reading mode, all while using the S Pen to make notes on an 8-inch screen. Why not write a review and send an email at the same time using multi-window? Well, you can stop imagining. Because it's here, the new Samsung Galaxy Note 8. It moves you. News from the TV Licence Office. With our new SMS balance inquiry function, you can now get your TV licence balance conveniently on your cell phone. SMS your ID number or TV licence number to 44210 and voila, 44210, quick and easy. TV licences make a difference. Otherwise, with Nancy Richards. Yeah. 
Otherwise, it is, and we're starting off the show today with another Otherwise Mole. And don't forget, if you'd like to be a mole for us wherever you are in the country, let us know. Send us an email at otherwise at safm.co.za with all your details, and we will get back to you ASAP. Voila, just like that. Well, our mole today telling us what's up for women in her part of the country, which is the Northern Cape, she's in Kimberley, is Shawnee Kemp. She's at the Volksblad uh, Nord Cup. She's been there for the last couple of years, but I think her association goes back way beyond that. She's uh, joined us on the line. Hi, Shawnee. Hi, how are you? Excellent. Nice to have you with us. Thank you. So you've been at the Volksblad for two years or but you know, more? Yeah, then before that, I did freelancing for Okay. Them. And then I was in London, and I was a freelancer there for the whole group of Media 24. Oh, my word. So you have been around and about. Yes, you? I have been. Yeah. With your antennae wiggling all over the place, um, we're looking principally at what's going on in terms of women, things for women, women doing things in Kimberley. Tell us what's, what's up for women in Kimberley. Um, well, there's always this general perception that the Northern Cape is plagued by rapes and you know, abuses against women. But it seems that there's good news in that the conviction rate and the police, the investigation rate is really improving and that there is hope for women who are prepared to report crimes and go through the court process as convictions have been going up and the police have been assisting you know, the courts a lot with complete investigations and uh, that prosecutors have been quite happy with the conviction rates and the sentences they've received. So, um, yeah, it's our general co- And the police obviously have also increased their, uh, their um, help centers for women and investigation teams, special teams. Um, there's now 16 clusters for um, family violence, child protection, and sexual offenses. So there's really attention on this, program, uh, on this uh, problem at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so hopefully in a year's time we can show even better figures in pe- pe- people reporting the crime and then the conviction rates improving still. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, the fact that the, the con- reporting is up and convictions are up are sort of good news. The better news would be that the statistics were, were altogether down. Do, you know, do women get together on this? What's your, what's your feeling on that? Yeah, I think sometimes people don't realise there's help um, and they don't apply for help. They don't really talk about it because it's such an intimate crime. And mostly, in most cases, it's somebody that they know and they're being manipulated to keep quiet about it or they've been uh, you know forced and saying well we'll kill your parents or we'll, we know you and you, we know where you live so that really frightens women to really talk about it and to report the crime so the more Sh- Shana, I have to say you, you saying that it makes me feel it sounds like you've yes. um, spoken to women for whom this has been their experience have you heard that firsthand? yes well I've been a lot in courts lately and mm. I've spoken to prosecutors police and so on and so forth as to what the, where the problem lies and um, talking to the police themselves um, a few months ago the, the our provincial commissioner actually then said that they have now introduced the 16 clusters so that message still needs to get out to women that they can actually uh, there is help and they can report the crimes and they can expect support yes are there any other support groups any other NGOs working specifically for women Yes, there are many here. Um, we've got the Northern Cape Person of the Year competition up, uh, coming up quite soon. It's the third year, and every year we get um, nominations of people who really are in the community helping women on an uh, NGO basis mm. or um, assisting the police in some way or another. So there is help and there is an awareness, and it's also women themselves helping women, which I think really helps you know, to, for the confidentiality and the trust. 
Northern Cape Person of the Year sounds terribly politically correct. <laughs> Does that mean that it can be either, obviously, either a man or a woman? Yes, it can be, and it's either a person or an institution of the year. Mm. It depends on the nominations that we get each year. This year we will be getting from the Department of Social um, Development some five of their winners who will compete against nominations that we get elsewhere from the province. So it's all over, you know, yeah. different, oh, different places. Interesting. Yeah. We don't kind of don't get to hear about that perhaps down here in the Western Cape. You know, you, you guys need to sort of blow your trumpets a little bit louder. I think we <laughs> in the biggest province, but, yeah, least heard. But, but <laughs> interesting that you say there that a lot of the women who are nominated uh, for the person of the year are women doing things to help other women. You know, very often, you know, it's the same with the uh, Woman of the Year, the ShopRite Checkers Woman of the Year. There are huge amounts of women in social work helping other women, starting NGOs, you know, doing their very best for the poor and needy. Is that, do, you, do you have a feeling that women are being pigeonholed in that area? Maybe, but maybe I can't really imagine a man helping a rape victim in the same way as a woman does. So it's a gender maybe based thing, it could, it could sound quite sexist if I put it that way, but I think women just can reach out, especially our winner for last year was the institution of the year was FAR in the R, where you know that fetal alcohol, fetal yeah. alcohol syndrome is a big problem, mm. but they've done such good work there, but the main um, professor is a man who's mm. really doing lots of research on the, pro, uh, on the, on, on the whole, so the women who work with a with the people on the ground but are assisted by men in office positions or doing other things to assist the women doing the work so yeah, yeah. we both we have our roles in the way we play we will help these people and interact with them just, just moving back from women helping other women in, in difficult situations and women as sort of uh, social workers what else happens for women in, in Kimberley or in the area generally where they're, they're doing something for themselves are there any women Yes, there are. Um, our women, our winners of our competition last year were women mostly. Um, it was the far institution, and it was also uh, the first year. It was Esmeralda Barnes, who was uh, she was the manager of Uppington Airport, and she did such a good work there. And now she's been uh, uh, sent to Bloemfontein. So that's been quite an honour for us that she has now been asked to, you know, to go to Bloemfontein Airport. And assisting there. So the women who are really achieving here go places and they go elsewhere and they go national and they go international. And if I just think of Kimberly, so many women doing such good work that we know of, Dorothy Howardson with disabled women and people obviously. So the women who work here I think must work harder because it's such a vast province and in that they gain so such good experience to be able to help other people in the rest of the country. Are there, are there very many women-owned businesses in the city centre? I mean, do you get a sense that the women have got a, quite a high profile? Well, the, um, Sharon Stein from our Noki, from the um, business chamber, she's really well known and she's been fighting for the city tooth and nail, uh, fighting you know, for service, better services, service delivery, You're trying to get more investors into Kimberley and then therefore talking to the municipality constantly to solve problems or things that put uh, potential uh, investors off. So she's a one very good example and she's been at it for years and she's still there and fighting as hard as the first day she started. Well maybe we can have her chat to her at some stage. I think that'd be a good Because as I say, Kimberly, you know, we just don't hear very much about it. Maybe it's our narrow vision so maybe we need to do something about that. In the meantime, Shawnee, keep up the good work. Lovely. 
and maybe they should nominate you for Northern Cape Person of the Year. <laughs> Not right about that. <laughs> Excellent. You take care. Thanks Thank a lot. Thank you very much. Cheers. Bye. Shane Kemp being our mole from Kimberley. And, you know, maybe you're from Kimberley and maybe there are all sorts of things going on that you know of as a woman. Do let us know because uh, really it's about time we opened our eyes. Otherwise at safm.co.za or pop us a message on Facebook. It's otherwise on SAFM. If you're worried about your financial future, thinking about life insurance, saving for retirement, not sure about investing for you and your family, what about your children's education? To answer all your questions, join me, Brian Hirsch, Tuesday morning, 10 o'clock. But right now here on Otherwise Talking Women, next we have a woman who's kind of created her own story. She's Marsha Gabriel. She's from Durban, incidentally. She's also CEO of the Helping Hand Network, and as I understand it, her core business is in people development. But she herself has an interesting story, I think, in as much as she was paralyzed back in 1991, and uh, we've got her on the line to tell us how she is now. Hi, Marsha. Hi. Nice to have you with us. Marsha, tell us your own story first. I've been saying that you're paralyzed. How are you now? What happened? In 1991, I've actually suffered suffered with lower back pains and severe neck neck pain with bilateral radicular signs and symptoms. I was managed by a neurosurgeon, a physiotherapist, and an orthopedic surgeon. Well, obviously, I was diagnosed with failed back syndrome and cervical spondylosis. Surgery was performed, and I wore a back brace and a cervical collar. At this stage, due to the aggravating factors in, in my mo- my movements were restricted, and I was found unfit for the open labour market. Gosh, so were you actually boarded? Yes, I was mm. medically boarded. And now? I am fine. Um, you have your good days and your bad days, but as I did say, that I am managed currently by a neurosurgeon, a physiotherapist, and an orthopedic surgeon. Doesn't sound, however, as if it stopped you. Have you um, have you gone against doctors' orders in carrying on doing what you do? Um, it did have an impact on my life, but um, I had to rise above my limitations and go beyond boundaries in my uh, disability. Yes, it certainly sounds as if you have. So, you are you the founder also of the Helping Hand Network, and what exactly is that? I am the founder of the Helping Hand Network, which is a non-profit organization shaping lives, building healthy communities, promoting economic equity, and leading the way through CSI in South Africa. The outcome is building of organizational capacity, power, and effectiveness. Our focus lies within building our nation, advising the nation, and feeding the nation. That sounds like your mission statement. <laughs> but, Thank you very but, much. But, but tell me how it actually works. What do you do? Economic equity, organizational capacity. Who do you work with and what do you actually do? Um, I bring together corporate and um, government. In uh, The Helping Hand Network has designed uh, three major projects, which is the, the CSI Summit, um, the Business Action Against AIDS, and uh, women empowerment. Uh, one of the highlights of our 2012 CSI summit was the formalizing informal trade, where we brought crafters and informal traders that really does not have a business name, a business plan, and we put together an exhibition. We profiled the traders. We monetized the business ideas. We created and found new markets for informal traders. We created conducive environments. We gave them access to market and enhanced enterprise development. That CSI summit, when was it? And was it a one-off or will it happen again? 
No, it is annually, ma'am. Okay. And when is it happening again? We are looking at um, one this year in August and one in November. But please remember that we also just set up offices in Namibia and in Botswana. Basically, the CSI Congress is the division within the Helping Hand Network that does research, advocacy, and capacity building on sustainability matters, contributing to the social reformation of respective countries. It sounds like uh, women are very much a focus for you. You also mentioned there, was it women empowerment, gender empowerment? How do, how do you work there? In terms of the women empowerment, we've, uh, um, that goes back to formalizing informal trade, where we have identified crafters without a business name, without a business plan. We brought them together at the Gateway Theatre of Shopping, created an um, exhibition for them, tried to associate them with, uh, with some of the leading corporates in South Africa, and allowed them not to feel as isolated, where they could trade their product and actually make a, a, a profit. In other words, giving them market access and, 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 and developing their, their business initiatives, monetizing their business ideas. Do you work with them sort of one-on-one? I mean, it's, it's one thing to be giving them market access, get them out there, but I suppose on a personal level, I mean, I'm thinking about you, you being in the business of pe- people development. Uh, a woman in particular who has come from a tough background is going to have to work on herself to make sure that she gets out there. Do you do that sort of work as well? Um, not on a huge scale, but yes, in terms of motivational speaking, I travel abroad extensively, I am um, motivating women. Um, also, uh, on a one-on-one business, I, uh, um, a one-on-one basis, I do business development with them, go into orphanages, identify their need, try and change their paradigm, change their mindset, shift them from their current situation, take them away from the dependent mentality where I would go in, in you know, in, in the first three years of the CSR Business Congress would probably give the orphanage a fish. Thereafter, we would teach them how to fish. Thereafter, we would teach them how to buy the pawn. It's, it's basically business development. When you say you want to change women's paradigm, take them away from the, you know, from dependency, which is crushing, what do you say as a motivational speaker and you've got a, a room full of women in front of you, what do you say to them? Prioritize, work smart, and while work is extremely uh, sacrificial, do not compromise your duty as a parent and as a wife. Um, above all, um, you know, uh, try to identify these these uh, priorities within your family. Uh, I, I always say, what makes a successful woman? One that is never afraid to empower, one that is never intimidated by the empowered, but rather one who ushers others to the pinnacle of success, one who is driven by moral ex- excellence and virtue. This is what I call called genuine feminine success. And how have you arrived at that yourself? I've, rem- who, who, I've who? remained positive, mm. focused, selfless. Um, I, I live by the statement, some are, not, some are born great, some become great. And uh, if you've not been great or you've not been born or not born into greatness, there is definitely a chance where you can become great. It, it all resolves back to remain positive, remain focused, remain selfless. Future success is not limited by past failures. I'm a firm believer that you rise above your limitations, refuse to give up, be strong and of good courage, pursue and overtake because you are a product of excellence. Very often, you know, it's said that one is a product of one's, uh, of one's parents, for better or worse. I was talking to somebody the other day who was talking about how badly parents can damage a child. Equally, they can be responsible for building a child. 
What about your your background? Were you given a lot of encouragement? Not really. Mm. I actually grew up with an alcoholic dad. So um, in terms of a a very, um, you know, growing up as a little girl, I did not come from easy, well-secured family because I grew up with an alcoholic dad. But within that limitation and within that situation, I continuously spoke to myself and I've always said to myself is that mediocre people never change the world and I chose not to be mediocre I chose to go beyond the boundaries of my limitation I chose I, 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 life is about choice and with that in mind, I am undoubtedly confident that if women can merge with diversity of skills together, we will cement the unity, we can go across boundaries, and we can maintain a strong showing in world rankings that are unmatched by any other. So what was the turning point for you? Tough, a tough childhood? What, at what point did you think, right, I'm going to crack this? Sorry, do you want to just repeat that? I was saying, it's a, it's a tough childhood you had, but what was your turning point? At what point did you choose that you were going to be successful? I come from the South African Post Office 10 years uh, in management, and when you look at the corporate sectors, you know, there are various limitations that is placed on one. And I chose not to be uh, limited by some of the corporate limitations, some of family limitations. It, it all boils down back to self. How hungry are you? How determined are you? What, what are some of the, the things that make you tick in life? My, 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 my main um, uh, message to people would be is go beyond that. Become selfless. Hard working never kills somebody, but there's always, there's always success locked within the paradigms of hard work. Positive, selfless, focus, go beyond, be hard working. Gosh, that's a, that's a lot of things to be, but, uh, you know, it's definitely possible. Um, Marcia, if anybody would like to get hold of you, perhaps they'd like to hear more about your motivational speaking, but also about the Helping Hand Network, what's your website or what's the contact? www.csicongress.com csicongress.com And you think the next uh, CSI Summit should be later on in the year? Yes, we are having one in August and one in November. Okay, August. It's a good month, a women's month. Lovely. Absolutely. Marcia Gabriel, more power to your elbow or strength to your arm. Thank you very much. Lovely Thank to you chat. so much for the opportunity and a all pleasure. the best as well. Take care. Marcia Gabriel, she's from Durban, doing all sorts of good things there. Well, if you'd like to know a little bit more, perhaps you'd like to uh, invite her to come and talk to your group. She's, uh, she's CEO of the Helping Hand Network. But check the website, which is www.csicongress.com, csicongress.com, and we'll put that up on our Facebook page as well. It's one uh, thirty coming up in the other. Uh, well, in uh, coming up after the news, we're going to be talking about um, DNA and the draft bill, which uh, DNA testing will certainly help uh, identify the identification of rapists and murderers. So stay with us for that. But right now, it's one thirty. Time for the news headlines with Asanda. Thank you, Nancy. Good afternoon. International Relations Department says the two South Africans injured in the twin Boston bombings in the U.S. were spectators and not athletes. Department spokesperson Clayson Munyela says they were treated for minor injuries and released. 
Temodumule men who allegedly orchestrated the gang rape of his ex-wife, tortured and mutilated her, has denied that he also killed her son. Johan Kotsa today told the North Gauteng High Court in Pretoria he knows he didn't shoot Ina Bonet's 19-year-old son, Conrad. And a powerful earthquake has struck Iran with reports of tremors felt in India and across the Middle East. The U.S. Geological Survey says the earthquake had a magnitude of 8. For SAFM News, I'm Asanda Mazzaunyane. Details at 2. Back to you, Nancy. Thanks very much, Asanda. Well, coming up here on Otherwise, uh, rape. Rape limits human potential. It silences people. It makes them feel less than human. It keeps them afraid and creates isolation. We're going to be hearing a little bit more about that uh, in just a minute. Um, because we're going to be talking about, we're going to be talking to Larissa Klatzinger. She is a Rhodes Student Office, Service Officers Officer, and she's also going to be telling us about the Are You Silent protest that's going to be happening uh, there in Grahamstown, also across the country. So we're going to be talking about that, plus we're going to be talking to Vanessa Lynch. She's the founder of the DNA Project, and uh, that's a very interesting one, because uh, right now there's a DNA draft bill which is set to be tabled in Parliament, which, if passed, will certainly help the identification of rapists and murders. And Vanessa Lynch has a very personal story which uh, has motivated her to, to keep on the, uh, on the ankles of this one. But first, let's hear about the Are You Silent protest. I think we have Larissa on the line. Hi, Larissa. You're doing, Nancy. Excellent. Thanks very much. I was just reading uh, a, a little quote from your from your information there, and I think the whole point about being raped is that it does render you silent, and I think silence is the theme of your protest. Just explain. Um, basically, the protest involves uh, a day-long gathering of over a thousand people in Grahamstown, and this year, for the first time, there will be gatherings in other cities: Johannesburg, Cape Town, and Peter Maritzburg, and the majority of the participants wear a T-shirt that says sexual violence equals silence on the front, and they tape their mouths shut all day. They don't talk, they don't eat or drink, and they, in essence, embody the silence that happens as a result of sexual violence in South Africa. Sure. In what way is it, aside from being quite a powerful message, in what way do you hope that it will help? Well, what we've realized, this is, is the seventh year that we've hosted the protest, and it has changed over time, but what's become really obvious over the past few years is that the the major impact of the protest is on the participants. We have participants coming back year after year and for many of them it provides an opportunity to speak about the sexual violence that they themselves have have suffered uh, for the first time. So as a platform where women are able to break their silence in an atmosphere where they will be believed and supported has proved to be an incredibly powerful catalyst for change. Who, who hosts these women? Where is this, uh, this uh, facility for them? Well, what happens is um, the Grahamstown protest is focused on Rhodes campus. We meet in the Alec Mullins Hall, which is one of our, our sporting facilities on campus, and we gather there really early in the morning. It's 6 o'clock in the morning, so it's still dark when people start trickling in. And if anybody knows students, you know that that's really quite a miracle. Um, to get them up that early. And we gather there, we brief them on what to expect, we distribute the T-shirts, and then we do um, a sort of focusing of people's intentions and then tape their mouths shut, and they go out. Um, We march through campus and onto the main admin steps at Rhodes, and then people um, disperse from there and go to their lectures and tutorials. And that's really the most powerful part of the day, is that people have to go 
through the motions of having a normal day. They have to attend their lectures, take notes, sit with their friends, go to the library, but all of that while silent. Um, So it is quite tough, but it's a really Mm. powerful um, and resonant marker for people that don't necessarily understand what sexual violence does. So suddenly somebody that has always been incredibly vocal in a tutorial now can't contribute anything at all to the Mm. discussion. Mm. And that voice is markedly lost. And that is for people a kind of visual and emotional cue for what sexual violence does on a much broader scale throughout the country. Yes, and then at the end of the day, we'll gather in the Grahamstown Cathedral, uh, which is in the center of town in High Street, and we break the silence. We feed people finally at the end of the day and allow them an opportunity to talk about what their experiences have been like. In the past, in the past um, three years, we've, people have many people have spoken for the first time about rape and childhood sexual abuse and it has really been a very powerful moment for people over the last seven years have you do you have both men and women taking part in the protest we do we do we have both men and women and this year for the for the first time there hasn't been a participation divide separating out men and women so in the past women could only be um, silent protesters or if they were rape survivors they could wear a t-shirt that said that they were rape survivors and men were um, given T-shirts that said solidarity with women who speak out. And they were more there in a supportive role. But this year what we've done is we've completely removed the gendered element of the protest. Mm-hmm. Um, and both men and women can participate wearing whichever shirt they feel most comfortable in. The majority of participants are still women and the majority of those are still participating as silent protesters. But we have had a couple of men sign up as silent protesters this year as well. You know, I mean, you, you certainly will have known about all the, the issues around the Anine Boysman case. Absolutely. You know, it, we've been, this year, the game has been upped hugely. Somehow, it seems maybe they've just been more high-profile cases, but mm. it seems that, you know, it, it's enough already. Um, interesting to hear that uh, uh, Deputy President Hlema Motlante has been talking at the men's dialogue, and really, you know, that's, I think that's a wonderful thing, and we're hoping that something really yeah. will come out of that. But, it, you know, seven years you've been doing this year after year after year, yeah. you know, somehow you think, really, this has got to stop. It's, it's, you've upped the game in as much as it's happening in Johannesburg, Peter Maritzburg, I think, as well, in Cape Town. Correct. How else do you see it, it escalating so that it really makes a difference? Well, again, I think what's important to recognize is that this isn't really a march, and it isn't an exercise to apply pressure on government to change laws. Mm. There are other events that are focused on that. What we're trying to do is create a platform for women to speak about their own experiences. And mm. because there really has been a silence in public discourse around women telling their own stories, around rape survivors being able to actually express what happened to them without fear of victim blaming as a way to fight back against rape culture. Yes, yes. It's, it's so that's what we're focusing on. Yeah. Of course it's really public, and of course there's an, because of that it starts a lot of conversations, but the key element of this protest is the participants themselves and the change that is able to occur in their own lives. Has it made a difference? I mean, do you know of individuals who have taken part in this and have felt much better they feel as if they finally have been heard absolutely i think that that message comes across very very strongly in fact to such an extent that at the moment there's a phd research project going on at Rhodes to try and understand why people are able to speak out at the silent protest 
when, in fact, they may never have disclosed that they were rape survivors up until that point in their lives. They may have had years of therapy, they may be close with their family, but they've never spoken about it until that moment, and we're trying to understand what makes the silent protest special. Yes, and I suppose that's interesting that there's a PhD uh, research project on it, because I suppose even once you have spoken out, it's not all suddenly going to go away, is it? Correct. Yeah. But, there, but there really is something very empowering about being able to own the space and be believed when you tell your story. Yeah. Clarissa, I'm no doubt that we will speak again because we have spoken about it before and I just know that each and every time you describe it, I think, whoa, that is such strong material. If anybody would like to know more, uh, you know, perhaps offer their solidarity in whatever way they may and wherever they are in the country, how can they reach you? They can find us on Facebook. They can find me on Twitter. Um, and the um, hashtag on Twitter is are you, uh, hashtag are you silent or at are you silent and we'll be disseminating a lot of information over Twitter or they can email me at l.klazinga at ru.ac.za and right. I'd be able to give them information. At ac.co.za? Correct. Okay. I, are you silent? That's the, the Twitter uh, handle. What on Facebook? Is it just um, are Facebook, you silent? They can just look up sexual violence equals silence, sexual and that'll violence. take them straight to the protest page. Lovely. Well, not really very lovely, but thank you very much for sharing. Thanks thank a lot. Thank you. Larissa, Larissa Kletzinger, and if you'd like to know more, uh, Facebook is sexual violence, equal, sexual violence equals silence, and on Twitter it's... Uh, uh, at are you silent or hashtag are you silent and if you'd like to pop her an email it's l.klatzinger k-l-a-z-i-n-g-a at ru.ac.co.za Otherwise with Nancy Richards Otherwise, it is Talking Women, and uh, don't forget, if you missed any of that or any information, you can pop us an email, and we'll try and help you where we can. It's otherwise at safm.co.za, or find us on Facebook, where we've got all sorts of info there. It's otherwise on SAFM. You can pick up the phone if you like. Hey, 0892102010. We'll bring you right through to the studio right now. To join me and my next guest, my last guest for today, she's Vanessa Lynch. She's the founder of the DNA Project. And I know that she, the issues of rape, murder and crime against women in particular, I think, are of uh, particular interest to her. And uh, she's here to talk to us a little bit about the DNA draft bill and uh, tell us what the situation is. Hi, Vanessa. Nice Hi, to have Nancy. you with us. Thank you so much. Interesting to hear about the silent march over silent protests. Eh? Very interesting, yeah. I must say. That is extraordinarily um, strong in its message. Um, and I think that there are, ex exactly as Larissa said, there are many different platforms for people to do many different things. And I've always said that. Um, often, you know, when you speak to people, they say, but what about this and what about that? Mm. And my response is often, well, what are you going to do about yes, that? Yes, so I take my hats off to everybody who does something. It's so easy to criticize, isn't mm. it? So what you have done, what you have found your particular space here, is that you're the founder of the DNA Project. We have spoken before, but I'd just we like have. to go back over why you founded the DNA Project. The DNA Project started in 2004, and I think um, with, with these kinds of organizations, and I say kinds, you know, um, NGOs and, and charities, it often is a tragic event or an event that occurs in somebody's life that forces them to relook at what they're doing and, and, and change the course of their life. Um, and, and in my case, it was the murder of my father. There was a robbery in our family home, and he was shot and killed by 
burglars. Um, in his particular case, there was a lot of forensic evidence that had actually been left at the crime scene. But due to a combination of factors, all of that evidence, particularly DNA evidence, had been destroyed, um, not collected, actually discarded in some instances. And as a result of that, there was never a positive link um, that connected the perpetrators to my father's murder. And this happens in so many cases, and unfortunately there's a lack of accountability as a result of that. So when this happened in my father's case, um, somebody once gave me very, very good advice, and they said, don't carry your file and your fury with you for the rest of your life. So one needed to take a bigger step. Well, in my case, I decided, okay, if I can't do anything in my father's case, because once that evidence is destroyed or contaminated, that's it. You, Mm. You can never go back. Um, I thought, what is the bigger picture? How can we in South Africa change the way not only that we deal with DNA evidence in this country, but also to create awareness around the value of DNA evidence? And I hear you've been speaking a lot about rape in this particular hour of otherwise. And do you know there is no stronger evidence in the case of a rape than DNA evidence? Um, In the case of child rape, There are no extenuating circumstances when you find semen inside a child. And that is why it is such a powerful form of evidence. And we need to really look at ways in which to utilize this in a country which has such a huge problem with crime. So a number of issues arose in terms of which I thought South Africa needed to change the way it utilizes DNA. The first is that we don't currently have legislation which regulates this particular area of the law. Um, we, we, it's not mandatory for us to take a DNA profile from a, convic- from a convicted offender. Neither is it mandatory for us to take a DNA profile from an arrestee. Um, this, is, this needs to be changed because we have a very high rate of recidivism, which is a serial offending rate in this country. And what often happens is that we don't have one rape per rapist, for instance. The people who are raping and committing these violent deeds are doing so on a regular basis. And here is a way in which we can stop them from continuing their their course of, of violent action against women and children in this country. If we are taking a DNA profile, for instance, at the time of an arrest and entering it onto da- on a database, if we compare those DNA profiles to profiles collected from crime scenes or other rape survivors, we can link that person to not only the the um, charge for which he's been arrested, but to several other crimes and actually stop him in his path, so to speak. So we need this in this country. This is something you you spoke about, action being taken, things Mm. actually being done to stop this. We need a methodology that actually prevents this. The the other aspect which is very important um, is crime scene forensic awareness. Uh, If you think about my father's case, well, in my father's case rather, It was a combination of the police force. It was a combination of family and friends cleaning away the crime scene because they didn't want us to be offended by what was on it. Um, Private security companies coming in, um, police discarding the bottle, for instance, they were drinking brandy and coke in the garden, which contained DNA evidence. A combination of those factors, it's not deliberate, but if we are all more aware as to the value of this type of evidence and we preserve and protect crime scenes, we then have an opportunity 
to utilize that evidence to link it back to a perpetrator and again make them accountable for their actions. And this is also something that um, the, the, the DNA project really fights for. And it's something that with the passing of the legislation, which we really do hope is going to come about this year, will go hand in hand with the implementation of this bill. And I know that the Portfolio Committee are looking at what provisions are being made for forensic awareness to, to give this legislation teeth, so to speak. Ooh, lots of questions. Okay, let's start at the beginning. You say that DNA testing is not mandatory. Is it maybe not legal? I mean, if somebody is arrested, they will have their fingerprints taken. Um, is it not? Is it not? You know, the next step to do DNA testing, or is it an infringement of of the arrestee's rights? It's it's not actually an infringement, so to speak. The um, the, the problem how is it, we have it done. Well, it's a, swap it's a cheap, yeah, it's a cheek swap. You know, the 1977 Criminal Procedure Act is the only act that we actually have which is being interpreted to regulate this. So if a prosecutor wants to have a suspect's DNA sample taken, they actually are able to do that. But the interpretation of this act, um, it's, it's so old, and they say, well, it must be an, a bodily feature, therefore it must be blood, and only a medical practitioner can take it. So you have all these logistical issues. Um, the new act will say that a cheek swap, which is a buckle swap, can be taken by a specially trained police officer. So logistically, you, you already have um, you know, a, a difference there. And it must be taken for all Schedule 1 offences, which, which is a very wide-ranging set of offences, whereas currently that's not being done. So just as you, as you say, you take a photograph and a fingerprint at the time of an arrest, a DNA sample will be taken at the same time and entered onto the database. Obviously, the more profiles you have on the database, the greater chance you have of linking a crime scene profile to a particular person. Same way as fingerprint works. So Is it a very costly business? Do you know that is that, is that one of the reasons why it's... No, actually the government has invested a huge amount of money into the forensic laboratories. We have two incredible forensic laboratories in this country. And that's why it's, it's so amazing to me that this legislation has not been passed years ago. It, I mean, it first came into Cabinet in 2008. And through a process of deliberating and reviewing and policies and overseas tours... We still haven't got to the point where it's been promulgated so that it can actually, you know... So nobody's actually against it. It's just Nobody's against it, no. It's it's a lack of political will, really. So the funding in terms of the forensic laboratories is, in fact, there. The technology available is amazing. I mean, you need the minutest amount of DNA to render a profile, and that's changed over the course of the years. Um, and you also the time within which you can render a profile is much is much shorter. And just as you mentioned, even the cost has been reduced. Just as tech, mm. you know, te- that this is the way technology works. So all of those things are in place. It's just we need the laws to ensure that this is being done. 2008, I'm thinking it's five years worth five of years. crimes um, and rapes and murders and all sorts of other things. And just going to the other aspect, which is the forensic evidence awareness and crime scene mm. contamination, about which we heard at the Oscar Pistorius case, and Correct. it seems so easy. Um, but it, it seems so uh, essential that perhaps police at all levels should be very aware of crime scene evidence protection. Correct, correct. I think this is something that, again, um, they are looking at with the implementation of this Act. And and I'm glad that this is going to be done because it does seem like there needs to be a renewal of this important fact. Um, And absolutely, the the first on crime scene officers 
they are actually all their job is to do is actually cordon off and secure that crime scene and prevent any person from entering it. The crime scene investigators are in fact the people that are allowed to collect the DNA evidence. And at both those levels, I do believe that greater awareness, specialised forensic training for the crime scene investigators, and a simple um, understanding as to the value of DNA evidence and the reason why they should be protecting a crime scene. Vanessa Lynch, lastly, very briefly, um, you mentioned that the DNA project is fighting for this. Who are you having to fight? Is it is it lack of political will? Is it lack of a sense of urgency? Very briefly, correct. Yes, it's 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 the government, it's Parliament. But I do think that we are going to hear this week that that um, draft bill is going to be sent to the portfolio committee for review, and that's when public submissions will be called for. And I really urge all of your listeners to follow our website and put in a submission as to whether you are in support of this bill and you think it's necessary. Let me give out that website immediately. Vanessa Lynch, thank you very much. I know you have dedicated a huge amount of your life and time to this and, uh, and your father's life and time. So thank, thank you. you. Thank Nancy. you very much. And let's uh, hold firm that it will finally get promulgated. www.dnaproject.co.za dnaproject.co.za and we will put that up on our Facebook page too and that's otherwise on SAFM thanks very much to the team it is otherwise here on SAFM next up it's time for Sharp Sharp the children's programme Sharp Sharp children's programme on SAFM with Leon Fisser Good afternoon, kids. Welcome to today's show. We are going to tell you a story about three little rabbits that got lost in a cabbage field. Listen closely. Invite your parents and teachers to come and join us. And let's see what we can learn from the story. Once, there was a bunny called Etienne, who had extra large ears. Etienne, your ears are enormous, laughed his friend Basil and Becky. Etienne's ears started drooping, and he looked very unhappy. It's all right, son, said Etienne's dad. You just haven't grown into your ears yet, and who knows, one day you might find them to come in very useful. But Etienne couldn't think of a single thing that big ears could ever be useful for, and it seemed his friends would never stop teasing him. Shouldn't you put flashing lights on your ears to warn low-flying aircraft? asked Basil. No wonder there's a hole in the ozone layer, giggled Becky. Etienne's ears drooped down even further. Ears up, son, said Etienne's dad. Any rabbit can have ordinary ears, but you my extraordinary Etienne. And don't you forget it, boy. Now, there was a big cabbage field nearby, and whenever there was washing up or bedroom tidying to be done, 
Etienne, Basil and Becky would hop off into the field to hide. They would sit among the huge cabbages, nibbling leaves or playing games, and wait until they thought it was safe to go home. One afternoon in the cabbage field, Becky started laughing. Etienne, she giggled, holding two big cabbage leaves above her head. What do these remind you of? Etienne didn't think it was funny. He chased Becky through the cabbages until they were both out of breath. Stop, puffed Basil, trailing along behind. Where are we? The cabbages had grown so high that the bunnies couldn't see which way to go. After what seemed like hours of running in all directions, the three bunnies were near to tears. We'll be here forever, said Becky. I'm sorry, Etienne. It's all my fault. The frightened little bunnies were exhausted and flopped down among the cabbages. No one will ever find us, sobbed Becky. But if we ever do get out, we promise to never make fun of you-know-what again. A few minutes later, they heard a cheery voice nearby. Come on, kids, said Etienne's dad. I'll show you the way home. It's lucky I reached you before it got dark. How ever did you find us? asked Becky. As they all tramped home together, Etienne's dad looked down at his son's ears, waving above the cabbages. He gave Etienne a big wink. Let's just say, I had extraordinary good luck, he said. What's a wonderful reminder of accepting ourselves and others for exactly what we are. This story was adapted for radio from the story called Everell's Ears by Nicola Baxter and can be found in Ladybird's Animal Stories. Listen to this precious song by Hot Water. It's called I'm Possible. Your colors never seem to draw. You take a stapler, but you don't know how to staple it down. You're possible, and I'm possible. It's all possible.
You're possible. You're possible. 